The scripture reading this morning will be from Luke 15, 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he, doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who does not repent. It is time for Children's Bible Hour and Toddle Time. If you're here this morning and have a child between the ages of... Oh, God, you are my living hope. Please be seated. Stories are the language of the soul. They have a way of touching our hearts like few other influences can. This is why Jesus used storytelling so often to illustrate deeper truths. He knew the power of a story to cut through to the heart. These now famous stories are known as parables. They were Jesus's way to communicate important kingdom principles in a form that we could remember, in a way that would touch us. Although the details of these stories were fictional, the kingdom principles are not. They are true, they are eternal. Today, these stories continue to remind us who God is what he calls us to be a part of, and how much he loves us. As a child, have you ever been lost or left behind? Or maybe as a parent or a grandparent, have you ever lost a child or left behind one of your children or grandchildren? That's scary, isn't it? Occasionally on Sundays up here, after everyone sort of is gone, there'll be a random kid roaming around the hallways looking for their family. It's usually a case where mom and dad or mom and parents came and grandparents came in separate cars and one thought the other took the kid and, you know, the kid ends up here. And so, I, you know, I go up to them, I'm sorry your parents don't love you and they left you here. <laughs> I take them up to the food pantry and say, this will sustain you for a few days until they notice you're gone. They'll come back eventually and find you. But, you know, it's, it's tough when you lose a child. It's scary. It's frightening. I mean, let me just ask you, parents, or even if you aren't a parent, you can project and imagine what it would be like to have a child on some level. What would it feel like to not be able to find your child? Now, some of you are thinking, now, which one are we talking about? <laughs> you know, let's be more specific there. But for most of us, we would panic, and we would do whatever we had to do to go and find the child because we cared so much. A few years ago, ABC News did a social experiment. They wanted to see how people would respond if they came across a child who appeared to be lost. So they hired some child actors, about seven years old, four different actors, used them one at a time, and they put safeguards in place and security to protect the children. And they had cameras everywhere, and they watched in this busy city, on the street, as people walked by, and they wanted to see how people would interact with the child that was lost. They told the, the child actor, you know, act lost, act a little bit frightened, act like you don't know where you are. And so then they watched. And they said over the two-day experiment, 2,000 people walked 
by the lost kid. Out of those 2,000, how many do you think stopped to do something, stopped to help the child? 47. 47 stopped to help the lost child. You see, when it comes to something or someone that is lost, how much you care determines how much you do. There's a direct correlation between your interest in something, how much you value it or that relationship or that person or that item, how much you value it and to what extent you will go to find it, to secure it, to seek it out, to keep it safe, to go get it. You probably don't have the same sense of urgency when you lose a pair of socks like you do when you lose your phone. Some of you, when you lose your phone, I mean, that is high alert. Maybe it's not the same when you lose the TV remote as it is when you lose the family dog. Now, for some of you, you're going, yeah, well, tough choice, right? The other day, I lost my wedding ring. Well, I sort of lost it. I took it off in the kitchen and I dropped it and it bounced twice on the tile floor before it plunged right through the slot in the AC vent in the floor, right under the cabinet in sort of the corner. Well, you better believe I went looking for that wedding ring. You know, I had to go get a flashlight. I had to take the cover off there. I had to almost stand on my head, reach down in there. I couldn't really see. I found an old Cheerio in there. I found some roly-polies. Finally found my wedding ring. You better believe I'm going to find that ring because it's important to me. The more you care, the more motivated you are to find what is lost. Now let me ask you, does that same correlation apply to people in your life who are spiritually lost? Good question. Well, Jesus addresses that question with a trio of stories in Luke chapter 15. Three parables. Three parables about something lost and something found. In each parable, there is something lost. And there is also a high motivation to go and find what is lost. And once it is found and secured, there is the same reaction in all three stories. Do you know what that reaction is and why it's so important? Let's find out. The first story is about a lost sheep. Jesus sets up this hypothetical situation where a guy has a hundred sheep and all of a sudden one disappears. He loses one sheep. What does he do? Ah, it's just one sheep. It's 1% loss, right? I mean, that's not that big a deal. Just cut your losses and keep moving. But not this guy. He cares about this one sheep. So what does he do? He goes out of his way to go and find it. And he finds it. And once he finds a sheep, what does he do? Does he grab a stick and swat it and say, why are you leaving the flock? You need to get back there. Does he, does he scold it? Does he get onto it? No. Jesus says he gathers it up and he puts it on his shoulders and he takes it back to the fold. And then what does he do? He calls his friends and neighbors and said, we have to celebrate because this sheep was lost and now it's found. So join me and celebrate its return. Second story. A woman has 10 silver coins, and she loses one of them. Maybe this is her dowry for marriage. Maybe she is saving up for something, but she loses one of these coins. And this isn't like you or I, you know, accidentally dropping some change between the driver's seat of your car and the console, and you're like, oh, man, I'm never going to get that. I'll, I'll worry about that later. 
We all know that feeling. That's not what this is, because this one coin is worth one whole day's wage. Imagine if you work and get paid to work, what you get paid in one day. Imagine just losing that. What are you going to do? You're going to go find it. That's what she does. She lights a lamp. She turns the house upside down. She's looking under the fridge. She's moving the furniture, and she finally finds the coin, and like the shepherd, she calls, now hopefully she doesn't use the coin at a payphone to call her friends and neighbors, but she calls her friends and neighbors to celebrate because the coin that was lost has been found. And then Jesus tells a third story. And this story, of course, is so well known. A sheep is important. A precious coin cannot be overlooked. But what if the item lost is something even more valuable? What if it is something irreplaceable? What if it is your own child? Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. If you've heard this story before, then maybe you've also heard, really in essence, what this son is saying to his father is, I wish you were dead. Because this son, like his brother, knows that one day dad will be dead, and when he is gone, he will pass on his estate to them. The older brother will probably get two-thirds, and the younger brother will get a third. And so what the son, the younger son, is saying is, Dad, I can't wait that long. I wish you were dead right now so I could have my money. And remarkably, the father gives him his part of the estate. Have you ever thought about the fact that this son, now, no, Jesus is making up this story, but if you played it out, this son actually sold part of the property, probably a third of the property, on which his father was currently living. Just took it right out from under him. Think about the disrespect. Think about the insult to his father to his family. And then what does he do? Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. We see the downward spiral of sin and shame. He insults his father. He deserts his family. He soils the family name. He squanders everything that he's been given. And he doesn't just make some bad investments. What does he do? He makes some really bad choices wild living. And ultimately, as Jesus tells this story, knowing who his audience is, this young man ends up where? In a pig pen, feeding pigs. This is significant, of course, for Jewish people because pigs are unclean. The ultimate symbol of impurity and uncleanliness. This man has hit rock bottom. He was lost. And he finally realizes it. And so he starts thinking about, okay, what do I do? What options do I have? 
Where can I go from here? And he remembered that his father's servants back home had a roof over their head and they had more food that they can eat. And so he hatched a plan. Maybe if I go back and just fall on my face and apologize profusely to my father. Dad, I'm so sorry. I did you wrong. I did God wrong. I I just, I'm wrong. Maybe my dad, if it's a good day for him, will at least make me one of his servants so I can have a roof over my head, so I can have food in my stomach. One of the things we learn about this man's reaction is that pride is always a roadblock to confession. Haven't you found that to be true in your life? You know there's confession that needs to take place, but there's just so many obstacles, ego, stubbornness, pride, because confession means admitting wrongdoing, admitting I made some bad choices, admitting that I didn't know what was best, that I went my own way, which, by the way, is the nature of lostness, going your own way, doing your own thing. This younger son had to admit where he was and how he got there. He had to look outside of himself, which, as we can see, he wasn't very good at doing that. There was nothing he could do to fix the mess he was in. He had to make some big changes. And that's the nature of confession. Confession is, this isn't working. I want to turn. I want to move. I want to do something differently. I can't lead myself. I need to surrender to the leadership of God. Pride is always a roadblock to confession. And so the question is, as this young man has this plan... How will his father receive him? What will his father do? And when you look at this text, the literary structure of this text, it's pretty clear that the arc of the story is verse 20, that everything sort of brackets verse 20. Verse 20 is the father's reaction. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. When the son expected a harsh rebuke, he received a warm reunion. When punishment was presumed, grace was shown. When the father had every right to point his finger and give a lecture, the father flung open his arms and gave an embrace. If you're like me and you hear a story, you need to have some kind of visual to help you see it. And we all do that. You have some visual right, right now in your mind of this scene unfolding, of it playing out. What does it look like? Rembrandt tried to capture it in his famous painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Now, if you're post-Renaissance in the 17th century, maybe this picture communicates to you, but to me it doesn't do a whole lot. So maybe a different image would communicate even more effectively. Maybe this image, the image of a father running down a dusty road to engulf his son with a bear hug. You see, that's what happened. You say, well, wait a second. This was a distinguished Jewish man. Any self-respecting man in this culture, in this society, would not run. Running was embarrassing. It was undignified. Anyone who cared about his social status would not run. And yet this father hiked up his tunic and started sprinting the moment he saw his son on the horizon. 
You remember what we said? There's a direct correlation between how much we care and what we do. Between what we value, the interest we have in what is lost, and to what extent we try to find it. And the wayward son launches into his speech, Father, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against God. I'm not worthy to be. And his father interrupts him. He's so happy that he's home. Verse 22, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Like the shepherd with his reclaimed sheep and the woman with her recovered coin, this father invites those nearby to celebrate. But this isn't just a run-of-a-mill party. This is a feast. This is a festival. This is a pull out all the stops, crank up the music. We're having a block party. This was a celebration. The robe and the ring, those are significant As the father puts this robe on his son and puts that ring on his finger, basically he's saying, no, you will not be a servant. You are reinstated as my son, my child. You belong to me. But the story doesn't end there, does it? There's another character in the story and we need to hear his voice. We need to understand his perspective. Because this is where the story gets real. And it gets very personal for some of those listening to Jesus that day. And let's be honest, for some of us listening to Jesus today. But before we can hear from the other character, we need to back up a little bit. We need to back up and ask the question, why did Jesus tell these stories? What prompted these parables? Look back up at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The religious elite of the day were not happy with Jesus rubbing shoulders with the riffraff, with the losers. You see, tax collectors had sold out to the enemy, Rome, and they were lining their pockets with their fellow Jewish people's money. They were traitors, they were cheats, they were to be despised. And sinners were all those marginalized people who were either too poor to know the law or too worthless to keep it. And these religious leaders looked down on all of them. They looked down on Jesus for spending time with them, for eating with them, for fellowshipping them, if you will. And Jesus sets out to expose their prideful prejudice. Their place in Jesus' parable here is unmistakable. They are this next character. They are the older brother. You see, the older brother was out in the fields, probably where he was every day, working for his father, working hard for his father. He hears the commotion in the house. What is that? Is that music I hear? Are those steaks I smell? What's going on? And one of the servants says, hey, you won't believe it. Your brother is back. Your brother is home, and your dad is throwing the biggest party. You say, well, that's great news. Verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. 
But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, not just my son, but this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see, the younger brother isn't the only one in the story who is lost, is he? Although he never left home, the older brother was miles away from his father. But did you notice how this father treats both of these lost sons? He shows grace and patience and love and mercy. You see, that is what this story is about. Lost people matter to God, and lost people should matter to us. That is the point. You say, well, wait a second. I don't like that word lost. I don't like that adjective lost people. That's, that's a little bit offensive. That's a little bit judgmental. The truth is, how can I know I need to be found until I know I'm lost? You know how it is when you're driving around? You won't look at the map. You won't ask for directions. You won't seek help until you really know you were lost. How will I know I need to be rescued if I don't know I'm drowning? How will you and I know that we need to say something and do something if we don't come to terms with the fact that people in our home, people in our family, people in our workplace, people we encounter every day are lost, separated eternally apart from Jesus Christ. You see, being lost is not about one's character. It is about one's condition, spiritual condition. Apart from Christ, we are all lost in our sins. The only difference between those who are lost and those who are saved is faith in Jesus. And so this morning, let me tell you, maybe you hear this story and you know exactly who you are in this story. You're that younger son. You have wandered away. You are not at home with God. Maybe you never have felt at home with God. Maybe you once were, but you've left to find your own way, to sow your wild oats, to do whatever you think was right. But it's not working. It's not working, is it? And you find yourself in a place that you can't fix. And all the while, as you're out there, you know what God is doing? He is scanning the horizon looking for you, longing for your return. But he's not forcing you to come back. He doesn't strong arm you. Notice the father in the story. He let the son go. In fact, he gave him what he asked for, which is just shocking. Sometimes God allows us to go. You see, love requires choice, and he gives you a choice. And when you choose to walk away from him, sometimes he lets you go. Take that path. But it breaks his heart. Like any parent here today whose child has rebelled. Like any parent whose child lives in defiance to God or defiance to the family. It is heartbreaking. 
and he longs for your return. There is always a way back. There's always a way back. But that path back, it means there will be some obstacles. There will be some roadblocks. Remember we said pride, arrogance, ego, stubbornness. People will speak into your life and say, no, don't go that direction. You need to be you. You need to lead yourself. You need to be happy. You need and fill in the blank. But there is a way back. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way back. And the path of Jesus is the path of the cross. Self-denial. Taking up our cross and following him. Listening to his voice, not our voice. And what does God do the moment you decide to turn? To take that first step back? Oh, he rejoices. He gets the robe ready. He gets the ring out. He calls in the angels. He sets the table, slaughters the calf. He says, it's time to party. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're here, but you're really not here. Maybe you're here physically and sometimes even mentally you're checked in, but really your heart, your soul is miles away. Maybe you're like the older son. Maybe you find yourself being bitter about the unfairness of your life. Maybe you don't like the way God seems to dispense justice and mercy. Isn't it funny how when we have the upper hand, when we're in a place of power and privilege, we want justice. But when we are at rock bottom, what do we want? We want mercy. Maybe you find yourself in a place that just constantly says, this isn't fair. God, this isn't fair. I have been working for you every single day. This isn't right. This isn't fair. Maybe if you're honest, maybe it's just pride. Maybe you're just self-focused like the older son. Two words. Two words we get. Seek and celebrate. Seek the lost and celebrate their return. Because you will seek what you care most about. Do you care about those around you who are lost spiritually? Those who have chosen to go their own way. How much do you care? Do you care enough to seek them out, to say something, to do something? Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. What about you? Back to that ABC News social experiment. They had to ask the question, 2,000 people, why only 47 stopped to help the child who clearly appeared to be lost? And the producers were observing and they said, you know, a lot of people were just so preoccupied with their phones and they were moving so quickly and they seemed to have a schedule to keep and they, they honestly didn't even see the kid. They didn't even notice the child. You know, they were just locked in on where they were going. But others clearly saw the kid, but they still didn't stop and so... The producers actually stopped some of those people and just asked them, interviewed them right there. Hey, did you see that child? We're doing this a little experiment. Why didn't you stop? 
you know, just be honest. Why didn't you stop? And so many of them said, I didn't think the kid was lost. Yeah, I saw the child. I didn't think he or she was lost. I thought they were waiting on their parent. Or I thought maybe they were in trouble and they were just cooling off and their mom was nearby. Or they did something called the diffusion of responsibility, which says, I didn't want to get involved because I, I, I knew somebody else would take care of it. I knew, I knew somebody else would do something. And then some people just expressed honest regret. I should have stopped. Yeah, I saw him. I don't know why I didn't. There are lost people around you every day. Spiritually lost. Separated from God. If God puts you in a position to say something, to do something, to, to develop a relationship, to develop trust, to, to step into those circumstances, into those opportunities as a representative of the kingdom of God with the good news of Jesus Christ as a message, are you willing to do something? Or do you just keep walking? Seek the lost, but celebrate. Celebrate their return. Christians should be people of celebration and joy and rejoicing. This is what it's all about, about the lost being found. I love in those stories, verse 7 and verse 10, this idea of the angels gathering to celebrate when what was lost has been found. Or as the father says, my son was dead and now he is alive. Sometimes when, when people are baptized here, I hear someone say, you know, the angels are rejoicing. That's such biblical language. Because that's what Jesus says is happening when the lost are found, when the dead are brought to life. Nothing should bring us greater joy than when God saves the lost. And when somehow he uses our feeble attempts to be a part of that, how do we respond? We join the angels with great joy and celebration. That's why we're here. That's what it's all about. I recently read a book called Saved by a man named Benjamin Hall. He was a war correspondent for many, many years. He liked to be right in the action. He would put on his helmet, wear his Kevlar vest, and he would go to the front lines usually in the Middle East, but wherever the conflict was, wherever the battle, wherever the war, because he wanted to give viewers back home a sense of what it was like right there in the battle. And he loved it. He loved the thrill of it. But as he got older and wiser, seemingly, and started a family, he thought, you know, this is probably kind of a dangerous job for me. And so at his wife's urging, he decided to take a desk job behind a news desk. He could be a news anchor. He could report, but not just from the front lines. And that was great until last year when Russia invaded Ukraine, and he volunteered to go. And a few weeks after he was there, he and a couple of others were in their transport vehicle, and it was blasted by an IED. It was struck. The two people he was with were killed. He managed to crawl out of this vehicle but he was there all alone and he was injured badly. I mean, he had no resources. He had no way to communicate. He had nothing. And the book is his story about he, how he ultimately ended up home. 
He finally got home. A lot of remarkable circumstances, a lot of brave people, a lot of medical intervention and surgeries, but he finally got home. He had one of his legs amputated. His other leg was injured badly. He almost lost a hand. He lost vision in an eye, shrapnel damage all over his body, but he made it home. And at the end of this book, he wants to say a word of acknowledgement to the people who helped him. And this is what he writes, and I want you to notice the language he uses. He said, the book may have my name on it, but the story is really about all the people who came from all around the world to find me, to save me, to rebuild me. That community of courageous people who risk their lives to save others. Isn't that what the church should be? A community of courageous people risking everything to save others, to find people, to help save them, to rebuild them as a new creation in Christ. That's who we are to be. As you go out in the world, remember how much you care determines what you will do. There are lost people everywhere. Just like us without Jesus. No different. Just we have claimed faith in Jesus. We have made him Lord of our lives. What are you going to do? If you are the wayward one, it's time to come home. God is ready to receive you with open arms. Yeah, but you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. He does. And all he cares is that you're home with him. It's time to come home. If today you're ready to come home, if you're ready to give your life to Christ or reclaim your life in Christ, do that. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's a room right behind me. They are there for you. And so if you want to go there in just a minute as we stand and let them pray for you, let them encourage you, just if you need to talk, if you need to share, if you need to unload a burden or share a victory, they'll be happy to hear you and honor those requests. Or we will do that as a church family if you want to come down to the front. There's something we can do today. We invite you to come home. Let's stand and sing. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, had it